Over the next two weeks, we're going to wrap up this series that we're in on how to be yourself, which means at least one thing, and that is you've got at least two more weeks of sermons under 20 minutes. It's good to have my boss back. I don't... That was a bad way to start, I think. <laughs> no, we, we've got two more weeks in this, seri- this series on how to be yourself. Uh, and what we're doing in this series is we're trying to understand how to learn, uh, how to claim our identity as God's beloved. And we're going to do this over the next two weeks by uh, looking uh, at two significant moments in the life of Peter. We've been saying all along that uh, the way that the New Testament describes our identity is with these words, in Christ which means that we share Christ's identity. And just as Christ is loved by God, so are we. So are we. And so when we ask this question, who am I? We know that, that we're not ultimately what we do. We're not ultimately uh, what, what, uh, what we have. We're not ultimately what other people say or think about us because each of these myths, as we've said, kind of tempt us to believe that if we were to just reach some benchmark, that, that only then would, be, we, we be, would we be worthy uh, of love and of acceptance. And yet in Christ, we are already loved. We are already worthy of acceptance. But as we said, claiming this identity as beloved sons and daughters of God, living out of this identity is difficult. It's hard to do. And I think that Peter gives us one of the best examples uh, of the arc of the Christian life in all of Scripture of wrestling with this identity, of trying to, to live it out. Peter has uh, moments of, of real clarity, and he has moments of utter confusion, right? He has moments of courageous faith, jumping out of the boat, and he has moments uh, clouded by his own personal ambition. He has moments, as we all know, of denial and moments of redemption. And I think in the, in the aggregate, we're pretty hard on Peter. We're pretty hard on him. But Peter uh, is often used by the gospel writers as a stand-in for the rest of the disciples. He's the guy uh, in the class, you know, that guy in every class who asks, like, the first question or raises their hand. That's Peter. And it's, we're glad to have Peter because he asks that question for us or he takes that risk that we're, maybe we're not able to take. Uh, it's this earnestness about him that often gets him in trouble with Jesus or uh, later with the other apostles, but it also makes him so relatable. I mean, I see so much of myself in Peter, and maybe, maybe you do too. He's just filled with sincerity and yet deeply flawed. So I think that, that he makes maybe the perfect character to explore these, these final two myths that we believe about ourselves. I am nothing less than my best moment, and I'm nothing more than my worst moment. This morning, we're going to explore the myth, I'm nothing less than my best moment, through a a story that I think is familiar to you. It's from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. So I want to turn to that now, and I invite you to listen for the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he said, some say, they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, we're here this morning seeking a word that we believe, that we trust, can only come from you. A word that might free us. A word that might offer mercy to us that we are unable to offer to ourselves. And so speak to us. Speak to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. By all accounts, this is uh, probably the best moment of Peter's life, at least the best moment of his life following Jesus on earth. This moment that Jesus looks at him, sees him, and recognizes his faith and promises to him that he is going to build the church around this confession. Imagine, uh, just imagine what that must have felt like for Peter to be seen, to be trusted with such a, a big job. Jesus tells him that he will give him the keys to the kingdom, which is a way of saying that he is going to give Peter the, the authority to carry on his ministry uh, on earth. Peter must have been uh, overwhelmed with joy. He must have thought, finally, finally I get the, the recognition that I deserve. I've earned this moment. And immediately after hearing this news, Receiving this recognition, we're told that Peter fails so miserably that Jesus refers to him as Satan, which even for Peter is a new low. <laughs> you and I don't want to imagine ourselves as making the same mistake that Peter makes here. We don't want to imagine ourselves as being capable in one, one moment of getting it right and in the very next moment, getting it so wrong. We would like to think of ourselves as we are in our best moments. Almost 500 years ago, just this past week, on, on August 1st, 1521, the reformer Martin Luther wrote a personal letter to his friend Philip Melanchthon to provide uh, some counsel to him at a difficult time in his own life, a life or, or a time in his life when he was at risk of losing sight of the grace of God. And at the end of the letter, he penned a, a sentence which has uh, since been no, no stranger to controversy, to say the least. 
He wrote, be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice. Another common trans translation is sin boldly, but believe even more boldly in Christ and rejoice. Sin boldly. Sin boldly. This might seem like odd advice for at least two reasons. First and most obviously, I doubt any of us need that kind of encouragement. <laughs> I doubt Philip did. But second, and maybe more importantly, I mean, shouldn't we be trying to do exactly the opposite? I mean, isn't that kind of the point, maybe, of the Christian life? Isn't that what Paul meant when he asked himself, should sin continue that grace may increase only to answer it emphatically, no. And last time I checked, I think that Paul outranks Luther. So what is Luther up to? Is he justified telling Philip to sin boldly? Well, I think to understand what Luther meant, you have to understand what he thinks human beings are really capable of. Luther thinks that, that we tend to overestimate our willpower to do the right thing, and maybe even more importantly, to avoid doing the wrong thing. He, he gets this straight from the Apostle Paul, who observes the mystery of his own will by writing this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. For Paul and for Luther, sin, and, and forgive me if this seems completely basic to you good Presbyterians, but sin is much bigger than just individual acts of sin, what we might call sins. Sin, capital S, is a way of describing the fundamental flaw in all of our wills. Even if we know the right thing to do, our will is often not strong enough to do it. If you don't believe me, then just go stop lusting, stop coveting, stop being greedy, Stop being angry. Stop judging other people. Like Paul, we take a look at our lives and we say, I don't understand my actions. The things I want to be doing, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to be doing, I'm doing all of the time. In modern language, we call this a built-in bias against our own flourishing and the flourishing of others. That's what sinfulness is. And Luther sees this and he calls a thing what it is. We are sinners. We are sinners nevertheless loved by God, but we are sinners. And if we miss this, truthfully, if we miss this, we risk thinking that we are loved by God on account of our best selves, our best moments. We think that the things we do for God and with God are the reason that God loves us and the reason God accepts us. There was an article published in the, in the New York Times earlier this year, you might have seen it, entitled, Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. It was a very personal essay written from the perspective of a woman who had endured a childhood really dominated by sin, or at least the notion of sin. Maybe you can relate to her. Here, here's what she wrote. Sin was the inflexible yardstick by which I was measured. Actions, words, even thoughts weren't safe from scrutiny. The list of sinful offenses seemed infinite. Listening to secular music or watching secular television, saying gosh or darn or geez. God was a megaphone bleeding in my head. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. 
I resonated with this piece a lot, to tell you the truth. Uh, as many of you know, I was raised in a similar kind of Christian community uh, in which it seemed that the most important thing that we could do, the highest good, was to avoid anything that might even be perceived as sin. It was so intense that I, I literally grew up thinking Southern Baptists were liberals. <laughs> and when Abby, my wife and I were married, um, half of my extended family refused to attend our wedding because uh, we indicated that there would be dancing at the reception on the invitation. And I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I wish that I were, that's a true story. And I tell you this not to drag my own family or the church that I grew up in. I, I sincerely believe that they were doing the best they could, but I tell you that so you know that I've seen firsthand the kind of damage a bad theology of sin can really create in someone's life. Maybe many of you have had a, a similar experience. I dare say if you grew up in the 90s as a youth group kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe hearing the word sin itself just brings up shame and guilt that makes you feel like you would never be worthy. Maybe you too, like the woman who wrote this article, want to do away with the, the concept of sin. Or at least maybe you notice your own reluctance to use the word. I thought a lot about this essay since reading it. The, the author suggests that instead of teaching her children about sin, she will teach them instead to be good. She will teach them to fight injustice and inequality, to give to people uh, who are in need, to stand up to bullies, to be engaged citizens of the world, all really good things, things that uh, honestly I hope to teach my own sons. And it's tempting for me to think that the most important thing I can teach my sons is to be good. If you've seen my two-year-old, you know that that's not working. <laughs> we're, gonna have to, we're gonna have to try something else, Abby. Um, but here's the thing, if I only teach my sons to be good, if I only launch them into the world with the advice not to sin, they won't know how to understand or cope with their failures, which will inevitably come. Which means that they will either be constantly frustrated with themselves, because they cannot be good all the time, or, and perhaps worse, they will become very good at pretending to be good. In either case, there is neither freedom nor mercy. In either case, they will not be able to claim their identity as beloved by God just as they are. Please hear me on this. I really don't want you to think that I'm being cavalier about human sinfulness, especially not in the wake of the last 24 hours. Luther's advice to sin boldly is not, not meant to give us license to do whatever we want. It is meant to give us relief to free us from the shame and the guilt that our sin piles upon us so that we might indeed see ourselves with the same compassion and the same grace which with God sees us. And if you think that this paints a rather bleak picture for human beings, if you find it defeating in some way to think of yourself as a sinner, here's what I would say. To accept yourself as a sinner, to, as someone with a, a significant bias against your own flourishing and the flourishing of others, who is indeed in need of mercy, 
I think is much less defeating, it's much less crushing than to expect that the power to be good is within your reach and you just haven't figured it out yet. That is a weight that I don't know anyone who can stand up underneath. In the section leading up to Luther's advice to sin boldly, he writes this. If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach imaginary, but true mercy. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. So here's the true mercy. God does not save imaginary sinners, but saves actual sinners like you and like me. He does this out of his great love for us. That is the true mercy. And because God is rich in mercy, my friends, I tell you to sin boldly, but believe even more boldly in Christ and rejoice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.